Thank you for tuning in to Emmanuel Faith Community Church. We hope you enjoy today's sermon. My name is uh, Ryan Lundy. I'm the young adults pastor here at our church. I'm the other Ryan. So uh, I am the young adults pastor. If you're a young adult or you know a young adult, uh, would love to have them join us on Tuesdays at 7 o'clock. We meet in the young adult room over on the other end of campus. We will be starting that next Tuesday. It's our first time in 2023. Um, And so we'd love to have you join us for that. Um, And we also are a recognized student club on Palomar and Cal State. And so if you or someone you know attends either of those two schools, we would love to connect with them and support them uh, through their college journey. Uh, Well, today it's my privilege to start us off in a new series titled, There May Be Dragons. It's a phrase that ancient and medieval cartographers would use when they would illustrate their maps. They would draw the the known world. They would, uh, in intricate detail, uh, list cities and kingdoms and continents. But when it came to the bounds of what they knew, well, as far as they knew, there may be dragons. It's a fitting phrase for us. It's a phrase that conjures up all sorts of Images of challenges, opportunities, potentialities. And yet in the midst of all of that, the question that you and I might be asking as we hear that phrase is just simply, what is out there? For all we know, there may be dragons. You know, it's a question that as a, as a society and as a community, as we're reflecting on the new year, it's a, it's a fitting question Right now, all of us more or less in this room have gone around enough rotations of the sun to know generally what comes around every New Year's, right? We all make resolutions and none of us keep them. We all start gym memberships and none of us go to the gym. There's all sorts of different commitments we make. Every year's the same, right? Unless that year was 2020, 2021, 2022. Right between a pandemic, wars, rumors of wars, society uh, kind of falling apart, global instability, you name it. Let alone the personal tragedy and the grief and the struggles and the lives that we left behind those years ago. This decade has turned out to be anything but normal, hasn't it? And at this point, going into 2023, I don't know about you, I don't know if I can handle it anymore. I'd much rather just simply settle for what's predictable, what's usual, what's comfortable, and just do me for the rest of this year, especially in the midst of all the chaos, the uncertainty, the change, the challenges that you and I face. And yet, Emmanuel Faith, regardless of what you think about the new year, you and I are faced with the question, what are we going to do with the time that's given to us? The Lord still has you here for a reason. If he didn't have a reason for you here, you wouldn't be here. So what are you going to do with the time that's given to you in 2023? No matter if that's a a good question or a positive one for you or a negative one. You know, as I think about this moment and I think about the the, uh, tension of New Year's, I'm brought back to previous times that we would do our college winter camp up at Big Bear. We would take a a group of college students and afterwards, those of us that uh, wanted to would stick around and we would uh, hit the slopes with snowboarding and skiing and uh, have a good time out there. Now, I don't want to give the wrong impression. I'm not an excellent snowboarder, okay? But I'm good enough to be an instructor for an absolute beginner. So that was my job for the day. I was on the bunny hill with those that had never been, and I was showing them a couple moves, you know, just some of the fundamentals, right, of what they needed to do in order to enjoy the slopes. 
Now, there was one student that joined us that day, and his name was Henry. And Henry had brought nothing with him. He didn't have a jacket. He didn't have snow pants. To his credit, he did have a beanie, but he also didn't have arguably the most important part, and that was gloves. He brought nothing. And I remember looking over his getup being like, how is this going to go for Henry? So we get up to the top of the bunny hill, and I come up right next to him, and I ask him, hey, Henry, how are you feeling about today? And I'll never forget his response to me. He turned to me with a smile on his face. He said, I'm feeling great. And then he proceeded to go straight down that bunny hill like he belonged. No curves, no breaks, no uh, turns left or right. He just went straight down like he'd belonged there. And every single time, I was watching him from the top of the, the run, and I was watching him go down. I was thinking to myself, all right, now's the time he's going to eat it. Now's the time he's going to face plant. Now's the time that he's going to realize that he needs his instructor. Never came. Much to my surprise, Henry made it to the end of the bunny hill, beaming as he was when he left it, and he went down that run without a scratch. Where Henry lacked in equipment, what he lacked in experience, or so I thought, Henry made up for in arguably the more important piece, he made up for in confidence. You see, what's amazing about confidence is if you have gone skiing or snowboarding, man, you got to pretend that you belong there, even if you don't belong there. you got to commit... And you got to go for it. And what every beginner and intermediate and advanced and anybody on the slopes can fall prey to uh, asking themselves is, well, maybe I'll fall. Maybe I'll hit something. Maybe I'll die. All valid, reasonable, right questions to ask. But do those questions prevent us from asking the question that guys like Henry ask? Maybe I don't. Maybe I make it. Maybe I have the time of my life. Maybe I go down this run without a scratch. Maybe. Who's to say? All I know is that Henry opted for the maybe that led him to seize the moment. The maybe that capitalized on the opportunity for a good time. You see, Emmanuel Faith, we're at the top of a run. There's only one way down this mountain. You cannot opt out of 2023. It is given to you. What are you going to do with it? Which maybe are you and I going to listen to? The first question as we dive into this is just listen. What is preventing you and me from being like Henry? What is it that causes us to be paralyzed by the endless possibilities of what could go wrong instead of seizing the opportunities for trust in a God that will supply for our every need? What are you and I to do? with this new year. Well, as we start in our first message, it's a strong maybe. We're gonna be diving into 1 Samuel chapter 14. If you wanna turn there, feel free. We've got uh, Bibles in the seats in front of you as well as up on the screens. As we're getting ready to dive in, just a little bit of backstory for us. This is a point in Israel's history in which they are locked in battle with a savage people. You see, at this point in 1 Samuel 14, the Israelites are fighting for their lives against the Philistines. Now, scholars hypothesize that the Philistines are a part of a larger people group that was known as the Sea People. And the Sea People were known as the Sea People because, well, they came from the sea. They don't know where they originated from. All we know is that they terrorized kings and kingdoms from Turkey to Egypt. In fact, the Sea People were so savage that they almost succeeded in toppling the superpower of the day, Egypt. 
And after narrowly saving his kingdom, Pharaoh Ramesses III beat back the sea people. And on the heels of defeat, the sea people, specifically the Philistines, looked just a little to the north to a podunk nation named Israel that had barely established a kingdom, had no standing army, no real means of defending themselves. And the Philistines set their eyes on a land that was flowing with milk and honey. And as we pick up the story, the Philistines have taken over a a foothold and they have uh, fought Israel and they threatened to take over the entire region. As we jump into the scene, the previous chapter of 1 Samuel 13 describes it this way. The Philistines mustered to fight with Israel 30,000 chariots. 6,000 horsemen and troops like the sand on the seashore in multitude. Now, 30,000 is the ESV translates it. The NIV and other translations prefer manuscripts that describe 3,000 chariots, which is a little bit more consistent with the numbers here. But regardless of how you end up on that debate, we can all agree, this is a large army. It's in the thousands. Thousands of the fiercest fighters that the ancient world has known. Thousands of the best equipped fighters that the ancient world has known. And on the other side of the battle lines, in the other corner, describes this in verse 15. Saul numbered the people who were present with him, about 600 men. You're telling me an army of thousands. Greater than the sand and multitude on the seashore against an army of 600 men. But that's not all. In verse 19, it says this, not a blacksmith could be found in the whole land of Israel because the Philistines had said, otherwise the Hebrews will make swords or spears. So all Israel went down to the Philistines to have their plow points, mattocks, axes, and sickles sharpened. So on the day of the battle, there was neither sword nor spear found in the hand of any of the people with Saul and Jonathan. But Saul and Jonathan, his son, had them. So not only are the numbers against Israel here, the odds are totally not in their favor. They also have only two swords among 600 men. The rest of the guys have got their shovels and their pitchforks and whatever home and garden equipment that they've been able to gather together. This is an HTV version of an army, not the standing force. That Saul needs to defend everything that Israel holds dear. And the shoulders of the man himself, Saul, the man who never asked to be king, still wonders how it is and why it is he was chosen by God. Second guessing himself at every which turn is now faced with the fight. The promises of God hang on. Promises of Abraham, of Moses, the conquest of Joshua. All of it undone if the Philistines win the day. It's into this scene that we dive into 1 Samuel chapter 14. It says this in verse 1. One day, Jonathan, the son of Saul, said to the young man who carried his armor, Come, let us go over to the Philistine garrison on the other side. But he did not tell his father. Saul was staying, Saul was staying in the outskirts of Gibeah in the pomegranate cave at Migron. The people who were with him were about 600 Men, including Ahijah, the son of Ahitub, Ichabod's brother, son of Phinehas, son of Eli, the priest of the Lord, and Shiloh, wearing an ephod. And the people did not know that Jonathan had gone. Within the passes by which Jonathan sought to go over to the Philistine garrison, there was a rocky crag on the one side and a rocky crag on the other side. The name of the one was Bozes and the name of the other, Sineh. 
The one crag rose on the north in front of Michmash and the other on the other side, south in front of Giva. Now, as you're looking through those names, the important thing to know is that this is one of the regions that uh, scholars uh, suppose that this is uh, what the narrator is describing. It's a narrow place of rocks and hills and a, a, a tight terrain. Now, what's amazing is we don't know for sure if this is the spot when I did, but when I did a Google search, I discovered that we actually have photographs of the Israelite army. It's actually crazy that the Israelites had a camera back in the day to capture this event. It's insane. Ancient technology. We thought the pyramids were impressive, but no, we have the photographs of both armies (laughs) captured here. It's amazing. Google. Just imagine this. 600 men looking out on the other ridgeline, able to see the fact that, man, the odds are totally against them. And yet they're there. They're gathered. Everything that they believe in, everything that they hold dear is on the line. What are they going to do? We're told that one man, in fact, excuse me, two men, are the only two that actually do anything about the desperate situation that they're in. And you and I are sitting here at this point wondering to ourselves, okay, what has possessed this young man, Jonathan, to do the unthinkable? He snuck away. The prince didn't tell his father. We're also told that no one notices that he's gone. So this is anything but a professional army. He's also run away with half of their equipment. One sword. (laughs) This is a desperate situation. What is it that has gotten a hold of this guy? Well, he tells us as much in verse 6. Jonathan said to the young man who carried his armor, Come, let us go over to the garrison of these uncircumcised. Don't you love the Bible's trash talk? I love that. It may be that the Lord will work for us. It may be that the Lord will work for us. For nothing can hinder the Lord from saving by many or by few. It may be. It may be. It may be that the Lord will intervene for us. You mean to tell me that this guy, Jonathan, doesn't have a master plan? He's not a gifted fighter. He's got nothing to show for it except for a maybe. And it's on account of that maybe that he's willing to risk it all. Everything is on the line. His own life, the future of the kingdom, half the swords. Everything is on the line. And he's got nothing but a maybe. He's no Samson. He's not a fighter that can take on the Philistines with the jawbone of a donkey. He's not some master tactician like Gideon. He's Jonathan. And all he's got in his heart is a maybe. It's on account of that maybe that he and his shield bearer decide to take matters into their own hands. Do something desperate. It's interesting that they're the only two to do something. Because we've actually been introduced to a couple other characters as we've been reading through these past couple verses. One of them is Ahijah, the priest. Now we're told that Ahijah is wearing an ephod, and an ephod is essentially a priestly apron. And on this apron, there's various different religious tools for the priestly duties, symbols and uh, various different trinkets and reminders of God's covenantal faithfulness to Israel. That no matter where Israel goes, no matter who Israel fights, the Lord will be with them. See, Ahijah's wearing the right stuff. He says, he's wearing the right stuff as if to say, do not be afraid, Israel. The Lord is on your side. And yet, isn't it interesting that Ahijah is not going off with Jonathan, is it? No, no, no. He's staying with 
the camp. Because it's a whole lot easier to be a priest when you're among friends than when you're among enemies. It's a whole lot easier to talk the religious talk, to wear the religious things when you're among fellow believers. It's a much more difficult thing than just talking or talking the talk just to walk the walk. Ahijah's not with Jonathan. No, he's back at the camp. Ephid and all. And he's not the only character that's not doing anything. The king himself, Saul, we're told, is wallowing away in a cave, quivering in his boots, thinking about the unthinkable, about how this defeat is certain. Now, what's interesting about Saul, again, let's cut the guy some slack. He didn't even ask to be king. And yet, what's interesting is the narrator tells us that Saul is hiding in a cave of what? Pomegranates. Now, what's interesting about pomegranates is that in the Old Testament, pomegranates symbolize two things. They symbolize the fruitfulness of the land of Canaan. They also symbolize the faithfulness of Yahweh. The abundant faithfulness of Yahweh. Of Yahweh who showed up for every chapter of Israel's history Yahweh who set the Israelites free, who delivered them through the Sinai wilderness, who fought on their behalf with Joshua, that Yahweh. You see, faith is not blind for Saul, but rather Saul is literally quivering in his boots while he's ignoring the symbol of God's faithfulness to his country. He's hiding in a cave. You see, Jonathan's alone. Everyone else that should be doing something along the same lines is too busy either posturing or wallowing. And I think there's something very profound about the difference between what we see Jonathan model here and what we see Ahijah, Saul, and the rest of the army. It's this. Desperation can lead us to two things. It can either lead us to faithful engagement or it can lead us to passive detachment. Desperate times call for desperate measures. But what kind of desperate are we going to be? Are we going to be the types to put our heads in the sand, to delude, to deceive, to distract ourselves? Or are we going to take the danger head on? Are we going to shy away from the opportunities to trust that are present, real, and inevitable? Or are we going to try to distract ourselves, wallow in posture? Passivity, it turns out, has a bunch of different shapes, sizes, forms. But there's one model of what it looks like to have faith. And yet, that's not what we see with the rest of the Israelites. You see, this straight-up formula that we see is very simply that desperate times for the Israelites, for Saul, for Ahijah, leads to passive detachment. And really, it would have led to an unsurprising defeat, wouldn't it? I mean, 600 men against thousands. Really, nothing unsurprising about an army of thousands squashing an army of hundreds, is there? We would never have known about this story had that happened because there's nothing unsurprising about a man-made defeat of a man-made outcome. And what's so difficult about this is the fact that it's precisely during times of chaos and unpredictability that you and I and all of us are prone to the safe, predictable options. We want to play it safe conservative, predictable. We've been beaten up a couple times, have we not, during these past couple years? It'd be very easy for us to just simply do the religious thing, to wear the religious clothes, to put on our Sunday best while Monday and Saturday go neglected, 
to wallow in fear of what could be, wondering when and how and in what way the Philistines are going to destroy us. Another way of going about this, I think, is a dichotomy between what we see here as dead religion versus faithful risk-taking. Dead religion, it's very easy to fall into. It has many different forms, but essentially a basic definition that I'd pose to you today would be simply this, is playing it safe with our faith. Again, it's very easy to talk a big game when you're among friends. Much harder when you're among enemies. See, Ahijah and Saul demonstrate how easy it is to us to do everything that's expected of us and yet still lose the day. The entire army is gathered for battle and yet none of them are in the battle. There's only two men that show what faith looks like in the face of certain defeat. Again, it's very, very clear where this goes. It's unsurprising, predictable, and you and I crave it because we want what's safe. One of my favorite definitions of insanity is given by Albert Einstein. He says, insanity is doing the same thing over and over and expecting different results. What I love about this definition is the fact that if you take this definition, according to Einstein, it's not Jonathan that's insane, is it? It's Ahijah. It's Saul. It's everyone else who's doing the predictable, safe, conservative option. They're the ones that are deluded, deceived, and distracted. They're the ones that are insane. Jonathan's the only sane one who's looking at reality square in the face. And again, it's very easy for us to fall prey to these sorts of traps because when you and I deal with our man-made certainties, they lead to certain defeat. The odds are against us. We're not ready. We're not prepared. We don't have it in us. We've been beaten up a couple times the past couple years. Who knows what this year has in store for us? But Jonathan does not look at that at all. Rather, he looks at a God that deals with maybes who intervenes on behalf of few or many. It's only when Jonathan looks heavenward to that God that he can look at his earthly situation with boldness and go straight in the face of danger. You see, Jonathan's the only one who can do that, and he can only do that because he has his eyes fixed on a God that saves. There's no other way. It's when he has that view that Jonathan does not model the dead religion of playing it safe with our faith. Rather, he has a faithful risk of playing faithfully with his own safety. And that's really what faith is. That's what this story shows us, is that faith is very tangible. We try to have religious talk and, uh, you know, say all the right things and have all the right cues and do all the good things, and yet at the end of the day, are we really risking it? Putting our lives on the line, putting our comforts on the line, putting our way of life on the line, our name, our reputation, our families on the line. Are we willing to do that? Because this is what it means to be in the battle, not just gathered for the battle. For Jonathan and for those that engage, it leads, desperate times lead them primarily to engage with faith. And it leads, we don't have time to dive into it, we'll discover that the next couple of weeks, but it leads to a very surprising victory. Greatest upset, the army of 600 farmers slaughtering an army of 1,000 Philistines. You see, only when you and I take our eyes off of what we think is certain and instead ask along with Jonathan, 
Maybe. Maybe. Maybe the Lord will work on our behalf. Because that's the kind of God that we serve. A God who gives the victory to the underdogs time and time and time again. Now, as we go back to this familiar photograph, I want us to just envision what it must have been like to be Saul. Jonathan. The camp of the Israelites looking out at the other side of the battle again with pitchforks, shovels, garden hose in their hands. What it must have been like to look at the other side and recognize, you know what, we probably, we're probably done for. But now as you're envisioning that, I want you to do the added task of actually taking Jonathan, Saul, and the Israelites out of the equation and instead imagining you and me and all of us here together. Because my friends, that's the situation that we're in. The past battle that Jonathan fought is only a reminder for the present battle that you and I are in. It's not the battle at Gebeah, the valley of Gebeah that we're in, it's rather the valley of our own Escondido. And we are gathered for battle. The odds are against us. The past couple of years have been tough. The church has influenced our country on the decline. The odds are against us in our country, in our communities, maybe in our own families. It could even be, the odds could even be against us in our own church, for crying out loud. And yet, my friends, the devil and his minions are not waiting for you and I to figure this out. They want you and me to be lingering around in the camp, to be thinking to ourselves, I've, been, I've had enough. I'm tapped out. The past three years have been too tough. I got nothing left in the tank. I'm done. He'd much rather prefer you to make that decision today. You see, again, it's so easy for us to be gathered for battle and yet to not get into the battle. But the God that Jonathan believes in is the God whose intervention is greater than our defeat. Because the God that Jonathan serves intervenes in ways that you and I could not imagine. Because the maybe of God's intervention is greater than the certainty of man's defeat on his own. That's the God that we serve. That's the God who fights on our behalf. And he's looking for men and women who will take the risk in ways that they have not risked it before. It's very easy for us to gather here and to play it safe. Another year same old business. You and I crave it because it's a chaotic time. The invitation is to risk it in a new way. What if this year was that risk? What if this were the year that you said yes to global missions? Where you went overseas, we've got trips that are going this summer. What if this were the year that you supported, that you prayed for, that you learned that you heard the stories of the global church, of our brothers and sisters in Iran, in India, in Palestine, in China? What if this were the year that you get, got engaged and involved in what God is doing with our global brothers and sisters? Maybe God will do something. What if this were the year that you said yes to Love Esco, that you sacrificed a Saturday and you loved our city to life? Some of the streets in our city tell stories and the stories so far lack the love of Jesus. You are the one to bring it. What if you were to risk it and to risk your life this year to sacrifice some comfort? to get engaged with our city. Maybe God will do something. What if this were the year that you sacrificed your career, offered up your company, and trusted God with your calling? That you stopped pursuing your own agenda and you started pursuing the agenda that he has for you? 
that you started living and leading in the way of Jesus as a servant, not looking for your own good, but for his. Maybe God will do something. What if this were the year that you put a reset on that relationship? You stopped fighting for your, your rights in your marriage and instead you started fighting for your responsibilities. What if instead of, of trying to protect yourself from your parents, you instead sought to honor and love them in ways that put them first? What if this were the year that regardless of the outcome, you, start, you continue to care for your wayward children? Maybe God will do something. What if this were the year that you shared your faith with that friend, that coworker, that neighbor, that family member that you've been praying for for years, but you've always shied away from? What if this were the year that you were to share? Maybe God will do something. You see, Emmanuel Faith, the possibilities are endless. And the Spirit is calling each of us right now to decide whether or not we are going to get engaged in the battle. Now, I'll be honest with you. In preparing these past couple weeks, when I first went into Paulson's office and he walked me through his hopes and dreams for this series, I had a little bit of a pit in my stomach because I found it so ironic that he wanted me to preach this passage. Because I'll be honest with you, the past couple of years have been tough. And I am I'm tremendously blessed and privileged and to be doing ministry and to be doing what I love and to be married and to, and to be doing all the things that God's called me to, but I'll be honest with you, the pain, the loss, the change, the grief of the past couple of years has been tough. It's been tough on all of us. I know so many of the sacrifices of family and friends that many of us have lost, the lives and the livelihoods that we've left behind that are never coming back. In the midst of all of it, it's been so easy for me, a ministry professional, to do business as usual because I crave it. It's my human nature. And my heart has grown cold. In the midst of preparing for this, man, the Lord has just been getting a hold of me and speaking to me in ways that I needed. And if you're anything like me, the Lord was asking me this question, Ryan, listen, do you want the victory as much as I want to give it to you? Do you want it as much as I want it for you? And that's the question I would just simply pose prayerfully for all of us to consider. Do we want the victory as much as God wants to give it to us? Because it's gonna require faith, faith that risks, puts our lives, our livelihoods, our families on the line in ways that we do not want because we desire comfort, predictability, ease. God of armies wants to give us something greater. Do we want it as much as he does? Now, if you're anything like me, on my own, I don't. And if you're like me, might I just suggest two exercises that are meant for apathetic, cold-hearted people like myself. Two things, prayer and fasting. If you don't desire it, my friend, there's a way for you and me. I'm, commi- I'm, I'm being open with you all. If you see me around any time this year, I'm making it public, and I'm not doing this to brag or anything. I'm doing this to be held accountable, Okay? Monthly, I'm, and if you're anything like me, a monthly fast. See, at any point in 2023, you see me around campus, ask me, Ryan, how's your monthly fast going? Hold me accountable because I need it. Because without that, I'm gonna just go the comfortable route, do business as usual, wear my EFID, talk the talk, but never do anything to risk it, never do anything to stoke the desire 
Because when you and I pray and we fast, we're saying, Lord, may I hunger for the kingdom as much as I hunger for food. Man, I, I, McDonald's sounds really good. Chick-fil-A sounds really good. Taco Bell at 10 o'clock sounds real good. Do I desire any of those things as much as I desire the kingdom? Do I desire that for that in my life? Do I desire it for that for Escondido? Do I desire that for Emmanuel Faith? My willingness to sacrifice one day out of a month. Lord, would you grow my desire for your kingdom? May I want the victory as much as you want it to give me. And you know, as we discuss the invitation of the maybes, I have full assurance that every single one of these opportunities for me and for you will lead to our good and his glory. I have full confidence of that. That's not a confidence that I have of myself. No, it's rather the confidence that scripture describes. The scripture describes the maybes as the faith is the assurance of things hoped for. The convictions of things not seen. It was the maybe that compelled Abraham, a man who had no business having kids, to in hope believe against hope. It was the maybe that Paul was anchored in when he said, despite all the tragedies and challenges of his ministry, no matter how dark it got, God has delivered us from such a deadly peril, death itself. He will deliver us again. See, that maybe is a lot more powerful than maybe, brothers and sisters. Where you and I see maybe, it's a much more certain outcome. But we deal with our man-made certainties. We think defeat is almost certain. Now, a little bit about Henry, going back to good old Henry. I didn't see Henry for the major part of the day. I didn't actually see him until 3 p.m. or so later on that day. I lost sight of him. I was snowboarding with the rest of the crew. I finally caught up to him at about 3 p.m. He was a little bit more subdued, a little bit more morose, and a lot colder. And uh, I remember going up to him, Henry, how's today been? And he didn't own up to it. He said, hey, it's been all right. We got to the top of the run at the end of the ski lift. We go, we're starting to go down the rest of the crew. And Henry, like usual, goes straight down the run. And it was at the moment when he was supposed to turn that I suddenly realized, oh, Henry's not bombing these runs because he's that good. It's because he doesn't know how to break nor does he know how to turn. And I saw the worst wipeout I'd ever seen, ladies and gentlemen. It was a yard sale of skis and poles, blood, unfortunately. He was okay. There was a moment I thought I had a liability on my hands, but it was all good. You see, the question that some of us might be asking is, listen, Ryan, I've trusted before. And it felt foolish because I trusted that God would provide me that relationship and it didn't happen. I trusted that God would provide for me and it didn't happen. I trusted that that job was gonna come through and it didn't happen. The question that some of you might be asking is this, listen, Ryan, when does let's go turn into let go? Because those are two very faithful paths to choose. And it's very circumstantial. And yet faith will incline us to one or the other. And I don't have time to be able to fully answer this question for us today, but might I just suggest some food for thought? is which of these two options requires greater faith and yet still grapples with the reality of fear? Because God is always looking for us to trust him. 
And sometimes as Christians, we try to faith away our fear. We try to say, no, 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 I'm not afraid. Brothers and sisters, that's not faith. Faith drives us directly to fear. In fact, it drives us through the valley of the shadow of death. Faith will call you to face your worst fears and you will be terrified. The reason why I can say that with confidence is because this is what faith did to the man himself. This is what faith did to God. This is what faith did to Jesus the night before his death, his brutal execution. All night he begged the Father, Father, if there's any other way, would you please do it? And yet not for a minute did he doubt the plan of the Father. This is what faith looks like, and it is agony. That is what trust is. We can't take away that tension. The only way you and I and any of us can do what we're describing today is if we keep our eyes in the, author, the words of the author of Hebrews fixed on those that have gone before us. Since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, Jonathan, Abraham, Moses, David, Jesus himself, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame. And is therefore now seated at the right hand of the throne of God. That's the only way we're going to be able to do this. Keep your eyes fixed on Jesus. Because the only way you and I can face the battle, the only way you and I can face the cross before us, is if we grapple with the fact that this did not end in death for him, it rather ended in glory. See, Jesus paved the way for you and me. This is not a blind faith. This is a faith of track records. And God has delivered on his promises. See, Christ's victory enables and emboldens our own battles, but more importantly, it also overrides our own defeats. No matter what this year looks like, no matter what last year looks like, no matter how much you may have blown it, no matter how much you and I might blow it this next year, Christ's victory overrides all of it. It's on account of that that we gather here today. It's not on account of whether or not we're any good at fighting. It's on account of the fact that he fought it for us. And he invites you, Emmanuel Faith, to join the fight because it's his good pleasure that you have some skin in the game along with him. In all of this, may we never forget what our brother Paul describes as this, is no matter how many promises God has made, all of them are yes in Christ. This is not wishful thinking. The maybe is strong indeed. In fact, it's stronger than the certainties you and I face day in and day out. As a church, we have the opportunity to be reminded of just how tangible that is. We have the opportunity to remember. But more importantly, we have the opportunity to receive. We have the opportunity to receive what he did for us. You and I couldn't fight it. We couldn't face it. He knew that. No matter how this year might go for you, what's more important, more important than what you do with 2023 is what's been done for you and what's been done for me. And so we have the opportunity to receive that again. This is a reminder. Be sure to open the narrower end first. 
the night of his betrayal, Jesus took bread, he broke it. He said, this is my body broken for you. Take this in remembrance of me. Likewise, he took a cup, poured wine into it, and he said, this is my blood. The blood of the covenant poured out for the forgiveness of many. Take this in remembrance of me. Jesus, we thank you so much. We don't even have the words to describe it, Lord. You knew that we couldn't do it, so you did. The odds are against us, God, you know it. We're ill-equipped, poorly prepared, unmanned, outnumbered. And yet, Lord, you delight in saving, whether by many or by few. Lord, I pray for myself this new year that I, in fact, would have the faith that Jonathan had to risk it. I pray for every person in here that we also would be men and women of faithful risk, playing with our comforts and our safety, faithfully for your sake, for your kingdom's sake, for Escondido's sake for North County's sake. Lord, would we desire the victory as much as you want to give it to us? So would you embolden and enable in the ways that you delight in? And Jesus, all together, would you overshadow every sin, every shortcoming, every failure? We thank you, Lord, that you love us. We love you. In Jesus' name we pray. Thank you for listening to our service. We'd love to have you join us in person. For more information about our church and service times, please visit efcc.org. If you would like to support the ministries of Emmanuel Faith, you can do so at efcc.org give.